Amen. Y'all may be seated. So good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, If you've got a copy of God's Word with you, go ahead and open to Exodus chapter 17. We'll start in verse 8 there in Exodus. Uh, When Jamie and I dropped off our son last fall at college, um, so we were here last year uh, being commissioned. When we dropped him off last fall, I wrote him a letter. And I wrote him a letter uh, and left it on his desk to be found once we left. I didn't want him to read it in front of me. And in that letter uh, were, were lessons, lessons that Jamie and I had taught Andrew over the past 18 years and that we said, now it is your time to put them into practice. Uh, We're no longer there to watch over you and to make sure that you take these lessons that we taught you and and, and act them out, but now they are yours uh, to act out on your own. And one of the difficult things uh, that I have found about raising children is that life lessons are not just a a list that you get to check off. Um, As a parent, I can't just teach my child a lesson and then check that box. No, lessons have to be practiced. Uh, lessons, a a, a child has to practice these things that we teach them. But not only the child, but also parents. And that's what makes it difficult, right? Because we have to live out those lessons practiced before our kids. But lessons left ignored often decay. See, just because you did it once doesn't mean that you'll forever do it, that you've perfected it. And maybe you are great at something in your life, but that doesn't mean that you will forever be great at it. See, everything in life takes practice. And unfortunately, some of of life's most difficult lessons are lessons that repeat themselves over and over and over again. And it's similar in the life of the church. See, even here at Blue Valley, and it's what we'll see takes place with the Israelites all throughout the Old Testament. And this morning, as we look into chapter 17 and 18, we'll see three characteristics that are needed in the church in order to be a God-led church. And these characteristics are not lessons that just need to be learned once and then left untouched. No, they need to be practiced by us. These lessons need to be lived out. They need to be known. They need to be understood. So let's dive into God's word this morning, uh, Exodus chapter 17. And before we start reading, I want to give you just kind of a little history of where we've been. The Israelites have crossed the Red Sea. Uh, They're now wandering in the wilderness. Uh, They've been at it for about six weeks now. Uh, They're no longer being pursued by the Egyptians. Uh, Now in the wilderness, though, they, they have problems. They've got problems like water problems and then food problems, and then water problems again. And what we'll see as we read and continue to move forward is that God is still teaching them lessons through all these problems. And they're lessons about faith, about looking to him and faith and trusting him through it all. So read with me, starting in verse 8 of chapter 17. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. 
while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and they put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, and he called it the name... He built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, I hand upon, uh, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So what's going on here? The Israelites are now faced with another problem. It's not food and it's not water. No, it's Amalek. Uh, for the first time, we see that the Israelites are called to fight. Everything that the Israelites have been through so far, the Lord has fought the battle. See, God took care of the Egyptians. The Israelites didn't fight the Egyptians. They ran from the Egyptians. And Moses was the man who they looked up to. They didn't have to rely on other people or rely within their, within their group of people. No, they, they looked to Moses for everything. But now the Israelites are fighting. They're taking up the sword. And here for the first time, we see the person Joshua, which we'll see again throughout the Old Testament. But Moses tells Joshua to gather up a group of men and to go fight. So now, who's Amalek? Uh, some of your versions might say the Amalekites, and that's exactly who it is. Amalek was the son of Esau. And so when you see Amalek there in your scriptures, in the ESV version especially, this is not just one person, but the people of Amalek, which are the Amalekites, the book of Deuteronomy shares with us a few details about this battle, this fight that was happening. The Amalekites were kind of a ruthless people. They fought like lions, taking out the faint and the weary that kind of lagged behind. See, the Amalekites knew about God, but they didn't fear God. And you can read that in Deuteronomy 25, uh, verses 17 through 18. But we're not going to focus there. Let's, let's continue with the text. While, while the men were fighting, Moses took the staff, right? The same staff that parted the Red Sea, the same staff that struck the rock to get water, was now the staff that was going to be held up in battle. So when the staff was lifted up, the Israelites were winning, and when the staff was lowered, the Amalekites would begin to win the battle. So let's just make this clear. The staff did not have some sort of magical power. The staff was given by God as a symbol of his presence, of a symbol of his power. So when Moses lifted up the staff, it was an act of faith, believing that God will act, that God will help, that God will win the battle. See, we don't know why the elevation of Moses' hands impacts the battle. The text doesn't give us the why. But we do know that God called Moses. He chose Moses to be his man. 
Even, even his big brother Aaron knows his role. He knows that Moses is the one God has called to be in charge and to be in lead. So Aaron at this point didn't just grab the staff from Moses and say, come on, you wuss, let me hold it up for you, right? Like most of us would have probably done as we looked at our younger brother and said, come on, you know, it's, it's not that heavy. But no, Moses lifts up the staff and Aaron allows him to do it. And what we see is that Joshua and his troops are fighting a battle with the sword. They're fighting a physical battle. And Moses and Aaron and her are fighting the battle of faith, a spiritual battle, a faith in human weakness. And what God wants his people to see and what he wants us to see today is that the real determiner of the outcomes of the battles that we face each and every day. And the determiner of every need is God, both physical and spiritual. So this brings us to our first point this morning and a lesson that we must not forget and that we can, must continue to grow in and practice. And that is that a God-led church must be characterized by collective exaltation. So what does that mean? I'm going to get to it, but I got to build up to it. So here we go. After the battle, it could have been really easy for Moses and Aaron and her to say, look at us, look what we have done. Or for Joshua to, to come back with his troops and say, where is the parade? Just like it's really easy for us to point to ourselves and our own wins and give us the credit. Look what we have done. But to help keep people focused on who's to be exalted, God instructs Moses to write down a memorial in verse 14. This is for all of God's people, but especially for Joshua as Israel's future warrior. Why? Why? Well, it's, it's a reminder to know how God brought the victory that day. It, it, it wasn't a magical staff. It wasn't valiant warriors. It wasn't Moses' strength or his faith. It was God. And God is the one who continues to bring the victory for us today. See, for us today, God has brought us the ultimate victory. Winning the battle. See, he brought it the victory through his son, Jesus. His son, Jesus took on our sin. His son Jesus was the one who went up on the mountain and held out his hands with two thieves on either side. It wasn't the way that we would have brought salvation. But God knew that that was the only way. See, God saves. God wins the battle. Through Jesus, securing our salvation, winning the battle of sin and death. So who is to be exalted? Is it me? No, it's God. God is to be praised. God is the one who is to be exalted in all things. See, we don't, we don't put our faith in ourselves with the sword. We don't put our faith in, in others who will become weak. We must put our faith in God. And then after the battle, Moses builds an altar 
in verse 15. See, the altar is a place of remembrance. Basically, don't forget what God did here. And he called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. And this is a declaration. This is a declaration of trust, a declaration of dependence completely on God, on God in his strength, on God in his guidance. And this is how we together as a church exalt Christ. Collective exaltation. We remind each other that God is always with us. We remind each other of his leading and his protecting us through all of life's battles. We remind each other of God's presence and power that each one of us can trust in God's unfailing love and his faithfulness. See, we collectively exalt God by reminding of each other that the end is sure. We know the end is coming. Heaven is coming. But guess what? It's not yet. It's not yet. How do we know that? Well, because we're all still here. We're, we're not there yet. So that means that the work here on earth is not done, which then moves us to our next point. A God-led church is characterized by gospel proclamation. Look with me in verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So who's Jethro? Jethro is, as we see, Moses' father-in-law. Moses lived with him for 40 years in Midian. And as we know, Moses married Jethro's daughter and he had children. And if you continue to read on, you'll learn that Moses at some point had sent his family to go live with Jethro. And now Jethro is bringing them back to reunite Moses and his wife and his children. Now Jethro had somehow heard about what the Lord had done with Israel and decided that this was probably a good time to reunite the family. Uh, He probably heard it through Twitter or something along those lines. But now if you jump to verse 7 we'll see in the text that the text doesn't focus on the reunion of Moses and his wife and his children. Instead, the text focuses on Moses and Jethro. It's not to say that the Bible doesn't care about a reunion of a wife and a husband or a children and his father, but that the Holy Spirit has something else in view for us. And this something else is is really awesome, and I I hope we pay attention here. Okay, verse 8. Actually, end of verse 7. And they went into the tent. Okay, Moses and Jethro went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So what's happening here? Moses sat down with his father-in-law and told him all that the Lord had done. He didn't talk about what he did or what he got to do. No, but he told what the Lord had done, what the Lord did to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for the Israel's sake, for the Israelites' sake. What the Lord had done when hard times had come upon them. What the Lord had done to deliver them. Look at verse 9. Jethro's response. And Jethro rejoiced. 
for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro is a priest of Midian. He's not a priest of the one true God, he's but a priest of many gods. And just as God had spoken to Moses through the burning bush, Jethro's heart is now soft and prepared to hear God's calling through all that he had heard the Lord had done. Now look at verse 11. This is great. Jethro says, Now, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. What are we seeing here? We're seeing a conversion, right? We're seeing a coming to faith. Jethro's heart has been changed. And then in verse 12, then, then he responds. Jethro uh, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came and all of the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, to, to insert this into this text might seem kind of out of place or an accident. But it's not. This, this text allows us to see God's heart. It allows us to see God's plan throughout history. His plan to draw people to himself. And just as God uses Moses in the work that God had done in his life, he wants to do the same through us. See, God wants us to share what he has done through us. And I think this is where we miss it. Because God does a lot of amazing work in our lives through the thick and through the thin. God does amazing work, but we think we need to have some God parted the Red Sea testimony. We think that we have to have some kind of uh, testimony that, that God brought food and water out of strange circumstances. But, do you know what's more miraculous than those stories? is a story about a camel going through the eye of a needle. Right? Matthew chapter 19, verse 24 says this. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This is my story. Okay, this is my story. I was an Overland Park teenager. I had everything I wanted... I was given everything that I needed to succeed. And from the outside, I looked like everything in my life was perfect. But on the inside, I was empty. I was missing something. But see, God broke into my world and he called me to himself. And praise God that I responded to his grace and mercy. But here's the thing. I didn't walk in front of a burning bush. Right? It was a teenage girl that talked about him. She talked about what God had done in her life. And that's how God drew me to himself. See, a God-led church doesn't grumble and complain about people or about circumstances or about the culture or about church programming, or the staff, or the pastors, or the budget. No, see, a God-led church talks about Jesus. 
talks about Jesus. Talks about what he has done for us. Talks about coming into a relationship with him. Talks about trusting him in all things. Talks about how we are to be used and how we are being used by him and his church. Which brings us to our final point today. Is that a God-led church shares administration. Now in verse 13, a newly converted Jethro joins Moses uh, the next day at his work, and Jethro observes, you know, all that Moses is doing, and then on his way back home, uh, asks Moses a question. In verse 14, what is it that you are doing for the people? He says, why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And then Moses answers in verse 15, because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and the other. And, and I, make them, I make them know uh, the statutes of God and his laws. See, Moses thinks that because he's been called and equipped by God that he needs to be the one to do everything all by himself. Now, you get a glimpse of this if you've ever uh, parented a child before, a glimpse of what Moses is dealing with on a day in and day out. Children uh, have small arguments all throughout the day of, you know, what TV show are we going to watch? That's my toy, not your toy. Uh, You know, uh, different things of like who gets to sit in the comfy seat. And you as a parent get to decide kind of the outcome of the argument. In most households, one parent lays down the law and then that child immediately does what? Runs to the other parent for a second opinion, right? Basically what's happening with Moses, but multiply that times a million. And that's what Moses is dealing with. So Jethro observes Moses all day and then in the evening he comes to him with some advice. Verse 17, he says this, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For this is way too heavy. This this thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Jethro basically tells Moses, you have a real problem here. If Israel's the vine in which, and you're the trellis in which they are to grow up on, you'll soon fall under the weight of all their problems. And because it's just you, you're going to take down all of us. So Jethro tells him what to do in verses 19 through 23. He tells Moses to trust worthy men and place them over the people and then allow them to judge the people. These men are to handle small matters and then any of the large matters they're to take to Moses and allow him to speak to them. So this sounds like a great plan. And Moses responds to Jethro's constructive criticism positively. But this doesn't always happen in life, does it? Sometimes criticism is hard to take. Especially if you're working for the Lord and putting your heart and your soul into the work that he has called us to. When we receive criticism, it can feel like an attack. But Moses didn't take it that way. And we need to be willing to humbly listen and learn from others. Because if we don't, then it could cause us to stop growing and learning and understanding. 
but then it could also lead people to suffer even more. So now listen to me here really quick. Some criticism is just that. It's criticism. It's not constructive. And and we don't want to be just critics, right? We don't want to be just critics. So ultimately what we learn here is that a a God-led church needs everyone involved. There, There are jobs for all of us to do. Yes, some of them are to lead over hundreds. Some of them are to lead over tens. But nothing in the life of the church is meant to be a one-man show. There are standards that must, have, that must be met. Standards to lead in certain positions, like being a church member, or having a testimony of following Christ, or completing our child safety requirements. But all of us, are to be part and to be active in the church. So the question is, where are you? Where are you? What's your role? What are you doing to serve the church? If you're not actively engaged in the ministry of the church, why not? And and I pray that you're not saying to yourself, well, because I haven't been asked yet. Don't, Don't wait to be asked. See, when I moved back here in 2008, I set up a meeting with the student pastor, and I immediately said, okay, where do you need me? What can I do? What can I use to serve? What can I do with the gifts that God has given me? See, you've been given a gift by God to do something. I challenge us all to do, do it, to do something. See, we have needs, as, as Dr. Tracy talked about earlier, we have needs in our preschool ministry and our little kids, and our big kids, and our student ministry. We have needs with cooking with the king, and our grief share ministry. We have needs on our India team. We have so many needs out there, so many ways for you to use your giftedness to serve the church. See, God has given us a church, and he's given us gifts to do the work of the ministry. The church is called the body, and the body has many moving parts. What part are you? If we all get involved, if we all get involved, I truly believe that we can take verse 23 and apply it to us. It says, if you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all this people will go to their place in peace. We can make a huge impact. You can make a huge impact in the lives of the people around us and the people here at Blue Valley. So in closing, what lessons do we need to learn and continue to practice? Well, we need to make sure that we talk about Jesus. We need to make sure that Jesus is always our focus at all times, that we look to him and that we exalt him. We give him the praise. Then we also, we need to talk about Jesus. We need to talk about what Jesus has done in our lives, making him the focus of all of our conversations. Go into the tent and talk about Jesus. And then we must be always serving him, looking for ways to use our time, to use our resources, to use our talents, 
each and every day for his glory and his glory alone. So let us go and do that. Let's pray.